Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Yes, you're very welcome back to uh, a very Christmassy, Christmas Eve version of Future Proof, our weekly science programme here on News Talk. My name is Jonathan McRae, where if you'd like to send some Christmas wishes, you can do so. You can email us science at newstalk.com or you can text us for 37531106. Now, like many others, uh, our family has a tradition of braving the Irish Sea on Christmas Day. And tomorrow looks set to be a cold one. But how cold is too cold for human beings? And at what point exactly does cold become dangerous? Well, you might be surprised. Our next guest is Professor Mike Tipton. Uh, he's a professor of human and applied physiology uh, at the Extreme Environments Lab in the University of Portsmouth. He joins me now. Uh, welcome to the program, Mike. Before we start talking about um, cold environments, what is the Extreme Environments Laboratory? It sounds very cool. Um, it's a laboratory in uh, Portsmouth University that's got three chambers, and they range between about minus 25 degrees Celsius up to plus 50. There's some immersion facilities. They can all go to around about 8,000 metres in altitude um, and we can simulate sunlight and we can simulate the high winds. So we can recreate just about any adverse environment that you could encounter. And why would you want to do that? Well, because actually quite a lot of people work uh, in these kind of environments. So some of our search and rescue community, uh, for example, the RNLI, the, the Coast Guard, we've worked with the Irish Coast Guard. Um, we have... Um, people who go on expedition to these environments and we even have quite a lot of sports teams who want to go and perform well in uh, hot environments or cold environments so it seems quite niche but we, we never seem to be without things to do and, and so give me an idea of the sort of experiments that you run in this lab what exactly are you are, what sort of questions are you looking to answer so historically, we've done things like looked at the human responses to cold water immersion. Originally, people thought that people died when they went into cold water from hypothermia. Our work, dating back now 40 years, showed that actually uh, it's the initial responses to cold water, the cold shock response, that is the most dangerous of all the responses. And we've worked with the RNLI now for, for about 40 years. And that work has led to the RNLI campaign to float to live on immersion, get that cold shock, uncontrollable breathing out of the way before you try and do anything. We know it saved lives. Um, so that's one area. We've, we've, look, we've looked at things like um, short-term adaptation to heat for people who have to go and perform in the heat with not much notice or without much time. So we can look at what's the quickest way of getting people up able to function in the heat. The same with altitude. We've looked at cross adaptation. We know, for example, that if you acclimatize people to cold, they do better at altitude. So it's a fascinating area. Mm. And we've done lots and lots of work with different occupational groups looking at the selection and preparation for people to go and work in extreme environments, whether that be the search and rescue community or or other groups. Very, very cool. So let's talk about cold then. Um, what At what stage does a cold air become a problem for us? It varies. We're, I start by saying we're a tropical animal. Um, we want to be naked in air about 28 degrees Celsius, which is what everybody's looking at at the moment for a summer holiday. Um, but... Uh, and we've moved away from those sort of equatorial origins, not by changing our physiology, our morphology or our anatomy very much, but through our intellect. So we've built things, we wear clothing, we use heating. Increasingly, we're using cooling as the climate warms. Uh, the, the problem with that, of course, 
is that it's adding to the problem. It's increasing our carbon footprint and increasing temperatures. So we want naked, we want to be about 26 to 28 degrees Celsius. As that temperature falls, the body starts to defend its deep body temperature, which is normally about 37. And the first reaction to do that is to shut down blood flow to the skin and withdraw that blood inside our layer of subcutaneous fat. Just below the surface of the skin, we have fat, um, which has about the same thermal characteristics as cork. It's a physiologist's overcoat, if you like. And once we do that, um, at the same time, we're raising the hairs on our body to try and trap as much air to insulate us around the body as possible. We're forming a boundary layer. Now, that'll start pretty soon. You know, that's start once you start getting down into the low 20s in terms of air temperature. That so, seems really, really low. Like the idea that 26 to 28, below that we start, our body starts trying to cope. I mean, that seems very warm to me. Yeah. No, as I say, because we're a tropical animal, uh, we function best in, at re- you know, if, if we're going to be at rest, it wants to be 26 to 28 degrees Celsius. If we're going to be working hard, that temperature drops down to about 11. And um, what I can tell you is that if anyone around the planet says, I feel comfortable, um, I can guarantee their mean skin temperature will be at 33 degrees Celsius. And it doesn't matter whether they're an Inuit, it doesn't matter whether they're an office worker, it doesn't matter whether they're on holiday, you know, wearing a pair of swimming trunks. We want a deep body temperature of about 37, we want a mean skin temperature of about 33, and we get that if we're in an air temperature of around about 28 degrees Celsius. And so what about um, water? Because obviously water, actually I was going to say obviously, what what sort of effect does changing the medium by which we get our temperature um, have on our health or the time we can spend in that level of um, heat or cold? So water is a much more powerful coolant than air because of its thermal conductivity and the specific heat of that particular fluid. And that means it takes heat away from the body very much more quickly. So for example, when you um, fall into cold water, the sudden change in skin temperature from the and the skin receptors, which are just 0.18 millimeters below the surface of the skin, drive a response that we named cold shock a while back now. And that cold shock response is gasping, uncontrollable hyperventilation and a sudden workload on the heart. And people who have gone under a shower they thought was warm and was cold or leapt into a pool they thought were heated will have had that response. Uh, it's the most dangerous response associated with going in cold water and it kills about 60 percent of those who do go into cold water which is why that leads to the that and what the unfortunate thing is that people also when they get that sudden cold shock response respond by thrashing around and trying to swim and get very activated that's completely the wrong thing to do that's part of our fight or flight response that is a, a very old response to protect us or make us run away or fight an aggressor by far the best thing to do is to suppress that instinct and stay as still as possible until you get your breathing back under control. Uh, hence the um, you know fight your instincts, rest, relax, float to live campaign that we hear from the RLI uh, and we know is you know as I say we know is saving lives. Yeah, I've seen the the photograph. I live near Dunleary, and there's a photograph of a person spreading out, spread out arms and legs as wide as they can go, facing up. And that's the campaign. The campaign is to say, just re- resist the urge to, to to move around. Just wait until you're acclimatized before you start trying to get yourself to safety. It must be a very difficult thing to do, though. I mean, I have to say, even though I know that that is now what we're supposed to do, I think I probably would still thrash about. 
Yes, I, I mean, I think partly once you know that it's the thing to do, our evidence from people getting in touch was saying, you know, they remembered the TV advert, right. they remembered the poster, and they, they suppressed that urge and they stayed. So, and it is only for a matter of seconds. Those cold receptors that are driving that response will adapt to the new temperature in around about a minute. I mean, so it's not very long. And it's just that minute where, unfortunately, um, if you don't keep your airway clear of the water, you've got the chance of taking in just the one and a half litres that it's the lethal dose for drowning. Now, the gas right. response on initial immersion is three litres. So already with that first breath, you can be in trouble. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it seems to be working. It seems to be well received. It is only for 90, 60 seconds to 90 seconds. I mean, it's the it's the neurophysiological equivalent of it's OK once you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can get over that initial that initial drive. So um, that that's kind of um, bearable temperatures we're talking about. But at what point does um, does a more extreme response to cold kick in in our bodies? If we go to say minus twenty or so outdoors, what what happens in our body? Do do other processes kick in to try and radically heat up the the, the core temperature or keep the core temperature from dropping too low? Yeah, there's a famous saying by Dr. Bass that man in a cold environment is not necessarily a cold man. Uh, and so actually, sometimes it's kind of irrelevant to talk about environmental temperature because it depends what you're doing and what you're wearing and how you're behaving. Mm. So it's the temperature of the tissues that count. So if we take the skin first, um, as the skin tissue temperature falls, once it gets down to about 15 and below, if you're cold and particularly in a cold, damp environment for some time, then you can develop what's called non-freezing cold injury. Now, nobody's ever heard of this, but it's been an enormous cause of problems over the years for those in conflicts in cold environments, for people sleeping rough, for mountaineers. Um, and it involves a damage to the small nerves and the small um, vessels in particularly the hands and feet, the extremities, which are the bit of the body that gets sacrificed when you get cold as the body withdraws blood centrally. Um, and it can result in you sweating in that, in that injured part. It can result in cold sensitivity and it can result in intractable pain. Um, as the temperature, of the t as the tissues continue to fall, this is um, extremities, human tissue freezes at about minus 0.53 degrees Celsius. Now that you're in the realms of frostbite. So that they're the sort of consequent. Now that those temperatures can occur in a whole range of different environments and depending on what you're doing and what you're wearing. So it's mm. best to talk in terms of the tissue temperatures. If you look now at the deep body temperature, which the body is desperately trying to uh, defend, as your skin temperature falls and your deep body temperature falls, you'll evoke that vasoconstriction, that shutting down of blood to the extremities. And that's where you start to feel particularly uncomfortable because the hands and feet in particular drive your perception of thermal comfort. So people will say that they feel very uncomfortable uh, when they've got cold hands and feet. And it's one of the reasons why women tend to feel more uncomfortable in the cold than men, because they have colder extremities. They shut down sooner, they shut down more profoundly, and they stay shut down. So there's always a battle over the thermostat in about October when the, the men want to keep the thermostat turned down to save money and, and ladies like to turn it up because they actually are feeling more more uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, so you'll then shiver um, and that's uncoordinated activity to generate heat and you can increase your metabolic heat production by about five times by by shivering so it's quite an efficient way of increasing your heat wow, production. yeah um, and then 
But if that fails and your core temperature continues to fall, you become hypothermic at a deep body temperature of about 35 degrees Celsius. So that's a two degree drop for most people. And as it continues to fall, the first major organ to be affected is the brain. And you start to be your personality changes. People become apathetic. Um, they, they forget things. They have amnesia. And then they slip into unconsciousness somewhere between 33 and 30 degrees Celsius. And then your heart stops at around about 28 to 25 degrees Celsius. But it's an incredibly variable feast. The mm. lowest temperature that somebody has been rescued from um, and made a full recovery is now a 12.7 degrees Celsius. Um, wow. So, you know, hypothermia doesn't necessarily have to kill you. It can preserve life in some circumstances. Um, it just depends how people are resuscitated. Um, you were talking about the thermostat there and how people, um, you know, uh, would like to have the room at different temperatures. But for, for the elderly, it is really important to keep your room relatively warm um, because of the effects of cold air on our blood. Correct. So um, very few people become or die directly as a result of hypothermia. But what they die from is some of those physiological responses that get evoked as you cool. And we know that, you know, in this winter period between December uh, and March, we'll see you know, a significant number of excess winter deaths. They're deaths that occur over that period that wouldn't you know, normally occur in, a, in an equivalent summer um, period. In fact, you see more excess winter deaths than we see excess summer deaths. Um, the people who die tend to be 75 and over. Um, they tend to die as a result of um, respiratory illnesses that are made worse by cold air inflaming the lung uh, or they die and that's particularly if there's a cold house if they've been out in the cold outside the deaths seem to be more related to the formation of blood clots and that that comes from that shutting down of the blood flow to the extremities that vasoconstriction because what happened is the blood gets sent centrally the body responds by thinking it's got too much blood and offloads fluid. So you get what's called a cold induced diuresis. People will recognize that that have stood and watched some rugby in the cold or sport and then feel, know that they need to go for, for, to urinate. Um, and that, um, that, that sort of reduction in circulating blood flow, becoming hypovolemic and getting an increase in the concentration of red blood cells is particularly dangerous in old people who are more likely to have less healthy vessel linings. So, uh, and they're more likely to form blood clots. Mm. So it's, it's, it's not a direct effect of cold. It's an indirect effect of cold mediated through cooling um, in the respiratory passages and also that shutdown of blood flow, that vasoconstriction um, in the cold. Mike, uh, so if we do have um, elderly relatives, how do we make sure that they are safe from the dangers of blood clots, for example? Is, is it just as simple as keeping the room temperature high enough? Yeah, I mean, the recommended temperature for people at particular risk is no lower than 20 degrees Celsius. And just making sure that people wrap up before they go out so they don't get that cold stimulus. The clots tend to occur a few hours up to a couple of days after a cold exposure. So avoid that. And the other important thing is to stay hydrated because dehydration actually increases the risk, as you can imagine. 
Very interesting. So, Mike, one last question. It's very self-interested, I'm afraid. I'm going swimming uh, tomorrow morning in the freezing cold at the 40-foot, um, like many others. And um, I've read that it has got benefits for the immune system. I'm wondering how solid is the science on the benefits of cold water on our health, our immune system, and our mood, really? So I would say that in comparison with the um, the dangerous side of cold water immersion, the benefit side is much less well researched. So you'll hear you'll hear three thick claims. You'll hear number one, it awakens you and sets you up for the day. Well, that's absolutely true because, as I say, you've got that cold shock response, a fight or flight response that releases releases lots of stress hormones, and so it's quite normal, therefore, that you'll that you'll be aroused and ready to go because that's what the body is trying to get you ready to do. Would you get the same response in that effect by just playing a very loud noise as an alarm clock? Well, yes. I mean, anything is, 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 it is a form of startle effect. Um, it's just that going into cold water is a very good way of doing it because as a tropical animal, lowering the skin temperature rapidly and driving that cold shock response is a really effective um, challenge. Um, the other couple of things that you'll hear is that um, I've not had a cold for a year because I do open water swimming or cold water immersion. The jury is still very much out on that. Our research seems to suggest that swimmers do better than non-swimmers, but it doesn't matter particularly if it's indoor or outdoor. And the problem is it's confused somewhat because the research is not that well controlled and doesn't have very good controls. But it would, if you if you was going to come down on any side of that, that particular argument, I'd say it may be beneficial, but only if you're in short term. If you stay in for more than a couple of minutes, um, then you're probably starting to impair the immune system. And I think probably it's that it's the cold shock response that is a, a very much a double-edged sword, is a major source of hazard, but is also maybe evoking some responses that are beneficial. The final thing is um, people with conditions that are, have an inflam- inflammatory basis, and there's a whole range of those, from diabetes through to, through to some um, uh, depressions, for example, and there is an anti-inflammatory aspect to cold water and to repeated cold water. And so there's a good hypothesis there. But again, it's not been properly tested. Hmm. Then the other thing is, of course, that most you're going to go swimming tomorrow with a bunch of people. So there's a socializing effect. You go to a beautiful place to do it. All these are beneficial things. But the studies that have actually teased out what the active ingredient is, is it cold water or is it one of these other many other things have not really been done. Right. So I should, I, I, if I do uh, what's that tomorrow and give it a miss, I will I'll quote you on that, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Mike Tipton from the University of Portsmouth, thank you so much for your time and happy Christmas. And the same to you. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.